This episode of Tales of the JSA is brought to you by Sean Angle. Sean has this to say. This donation is for Tales of the JSA. Yes, I know I'm late, but I planned on a Thanksgiving donation. And the request for donations came sooner than my money could make it. Dear Freaks, thanks for all the podcast enjoyment you have given me over the past few years. All for free. Well, except for guilt-free. <laughs> Honestly, I wholly enjoy all of the content you put out, and I am thrilled to have been a small part of some of your shows. Hope you have a great Thanksgiving. Sincerely, Sean Engel, a.k.a. Joe Anthrax, on the forums. Thank you, Sean. We sincerely appreciate it. Tales of the Justice Society of America proudly presents Crisis Management Everybody, I am Michael Bailey, and I'm Scott Gardner, and this is Crisis Management, a spinoff of the ever-popular Tales of the Justice Society of America internet radio show, in which we'll be scouring every corner of the DC multiverse in order to bring you full coverage of the stories that make up the rich tapestry that was Crisis on Infinite Earths. In this episode, we continue our look into the pre-crisis monitor appearances with a second of such stories, this time covering the new Teen Titans Annual Number 2. This was written and co-plotted by Marv Wolfman, cover, interior layouts, and co-plot by George Perez. Pablo Marcus was the finisher, Joe Costanza letter, Adrian Roy colorist, Len Wein editor. Original cover price, $1.00 outrageous in 1983 the story was in four quarters (laughs) i can't afford that story was entitled the murder machine the tale begins with police cars flying down the rain slick streets of new york city escorting an ambulance which speeds to mercy hospital while the talking heads of the expositional news network fill us in on the details yes (laughs) The ambulance contains no-nonsense Manhattan District Attorney Adrian Chase, listed in critical condition after the firebombing of his uptown apartment. The Batman's junior partner, Robin the Teen Wonder, had just left Chase's apartment moments before the blast. At the uh, hospital, Robin is accosted by an ENN reporter, and we learn that he and Chase had just raided the home of reputed mobster Anthony Scarapelli. A raid uh, Scarapelli's lawyer claims was harassment. Robin snaps on the reporter and, clearly distraught by this turn of events and worried for his friend, Robin storms off, leaving police Captain Hall with the reporter and facing the big question, is Scarapelli behind the bombing? Well, of course he is. He's a mobster. And his boss... Godmother Donna Amasidio is how I'm going to pronounce this. She's not too happy about what Scarapelli has done. 
Back at the hospital, while Chase is in emergency surgery, the ENN reports that Chase's wife and children are dead. And Robin snaps on Captain Hall when the man refuses to go after Scarapelli, citing lack of evidence. Donna Troy shows up with the other Titans, Kid Flash, Starfire, Cyborg, Changeling, and Terra in tow. Robin tells Donna that it's up to them to get Scarapelli and make him pay. Moments later, Chase's doctor emerges and reports on Chase's condition, and it isn't good news. Robin, tears in his eyes, is clearly pissed. Meanwhile, Scarapelli realizes that he is now at odds with his godmother, and this means war, mob war, and he needs help to combat her. Special help. He needs, dun-dun-dun, the Monitor. So elsewhere, high in orbit above the Earth, a busty blonde wearing a low-cut, clinging pink bodysuit and identified only as Lila is seen walking through the corridors of the Monitor's spherical satellite. She approaches the Monitor, of whom we only see a blue-gloved hand, and she gives him a file. The Monitor is speaking with Scarapelli and informs the mobster that he can only supply him with half of the dozen special guards that Tony has asked for. The deal is made for an undisclosed commission rate to the Monitor. Back on Earth, the ENN reports on Robin's day in court, appearing before the stand at a preliminary hearing for Scarapelli. Things do not go well for the youthful crime fighter, and he is clearly unhappy with the court's order to stop his harassment of Tony Scarapelli. The report concludes with a mention that Chase has left the country to recuperate. Sometime later, in the posh Cafe Italia, Scarapelli, with armed guards and beautiful women all around him, celebrates his perceived victory. The festivities are short-lived, however, as one intense and fed-up teen wonder makes the scene looking like somebody you do not want upset with you. Robin calls Scarapelli out, but the mob boss just sicks one of his goons on him. Robin makes short work of the gun hand, but before things can spiral out of control, Starfire shows up to talk her teammate down. Later, she and Robin have a heart-to-heart atop a skyscraper, and we, the audience, are privy to an assassin lining the teen lovers up in his sights when suddenly another unknown assassin shoots him in the back of the head. The dead man is dropped off at Scarapelli's mansion, and the fat mobster is rattled by this turn of events. At Titan's Tower, Robin wants to intensify his campaign against Tony, but the team begins to express doubts about Robin's proposed tactics. The team agrees, however, when Donna uh, steps up to say that she'll be watchdogging Robin to ensure that things stay on the right side of the law. And after an obligatory two pages of Raven's god-awful long drawn-out Trigon subplot, we are treated to some awesome action sequences. <laughs> I'm Thank sorry, you. but that Thank shit so went much. on forever and a day. Good God. Oh, my God. Oh, my. It's one of my notes. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> We're on the same page. Uh, we are treated to some awesome, awesome action sequences of the new Teen Titans putting the squeeze on Tony Scarapelli. And despite uncovering no damning evidence during their harassment campaign, a pleased Robin reports, it's all going just swell. Good. Good. (laughs) 
eventually, though, these uh, methods do bring about a confrontation between Dick Grayson and Donna Troy. Donna doesn't like these tactics, and she's worried for her friend. But she flies off, lost in uh, her thoughts of her impending marriage and whether or not her future includes the new Teen Titans. Meanwhile, the mysterious Monitor pulls together the team he's been paid to assemble, and we have the Scorcher, a pyromaniac, Spear, a Mr. T wannabe that, um, how do I put this semi-politically correctly? He um, he throws spears. Let me just put it that way. You draw your own oh wow oh wow. I didn't even put that two and two together. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Holy crap. Yeah, because that's you know that's not racist at all. Oh man, did 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 someone in editorial not freaking catch that? Yeah, I mean literally, he's Mister T, and he. I mean, you gotta say it. He chucks spears. I mean, come on. How how did that slip by somebody? Seriously, oh, man. Oh, um, the rest of the team is uh, Bazooka Joe, which I just got a kick out of that when I realized that's his name because he's he's actually called the Bazooka. But then when he's talking to the monitor by the communicator, the monitor calls him Joseph and the guy's blowing a bubble. So come on. It's Bazooka Joe. <laughs> um, Slasher, who was separated at birth from Misty Knight. Tanker, uh, a man bot with treads instead of legs. I hope that Misty Knight joke, somebody gets that. <laughs> I get it. It's okay. okay. And finally, Cheshire or Jade or whatever. The Wait, wait, wait. She's got two arms. <laughs> <laughs> Told you I got it. Uh, you know, J- what a- the Asian chick that uh, Speedy eventually has a kid with. Cheshire. Uh, okay, yeah, but she goes by like two or three different... Jade. So, yeah, Jade, Cheshire, whatever. It's that woman. So all stereotypes accounted for. The Titans have a little surprise waiting for them uh, the next day when they come busting up a Scarapelli operation and they, quite frankly, get their asses handed to them. Things do not go well for our heroes, but right in the thick of things... Changeling witnesses Slasher take a round to the back of the head from an unnoticed assailant, and we, the readers, witness the Scorcher having a uh, splitting headache courtesy of a nunchuck to the cranium delivered by a mysterious man in black. Their numbers dwindling and the tide turning, the bad guys beat a hasty retreat and the Titans lick their wounds. Wonder Girl finally confronts Robin full out in front of the team and wants to call a halt to this whole operation. But Robin plays for her a recording from Chase, supposedly from before the bombing, in which he shares a tip for a full-out mob war that's going to take place at Scarapelli's desert property. At the aforementioned property, Amasidio shows up to confront a smiling and strangely confident Tony. But before he can spring his trap, Raven shows up to warn the Donna, and that's when things go entirely to hell. Scarapelli's forces... Basically, flying death squad commandos tear into Amasidio's men and proceed to blast them to pieces with the Titans stuck in the middle of all this. Back at his place in Long Island, which uh, I failed to make a note about, but uh, did you notice how fast Scarapelli got from the desert back to his his place right in the middle of this battle? I thought that was... Comic book uh, physics. There you go. Uh, Scarapelli is preparing to blow this popsicle stand and make for Haiti in his private jet when the mysterious man shows up again, this time standing fully revealed to us, the readers. 
This Punisher-like masked man taunts and pursues the fat crime boss until finally, fallen, panicked, and pleading, Scarapelli cries, For God's sakes, man, who are you? The vigilante pulls off his cowl to reveal that he is, in fact, Old Man Withers, who runs the haunted amusement park. And oh, forgot- and he would have gotten away with it, too. <laughs> Sorry, I stepped on your joke. No, no, that's exactly my line. And he would have gotten away with it, too, if it hadn't been for those kids and their dog. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. It's Adrian Chase. Of course it's Adrian Chase. And You know, uh, I'm going to interrupt you just for a second. Mm-hmm. That is a gag they never did, considering that Changeling could have turned into a dog. Mm-hmm. They should have. They totally should have gone for that at least one time. I yeah. Agree. I agree. <laughs> and, like, have it be Trigon. And I would have... I would have... <laughs> if it wasn't for you and the dog. <laughs> That's how the Trigon saga should have ended. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have gotten away with it too if it hadn't been for you meddling kids. Oh man, I hope you're listening, George Perez. You need to go back and and re-edit that well, that last page. is listening too, uh, <laughs> considering what a Titans fan he. Is. Well, I'm sure he'll be listening to this because he's a Titans fan. <laughs> so anyway, it is Adrian Chase. He is the vigilante, and he's going to waste him some tubby mobster when Robin shows up and talks him down. While they are talking, and it's revealed how Robin figured all this out, Tony eases a concealed gun out of his briefcase and takes aim. Robin is hit as Chase pushes him aside, and Scarapelli learns the hard way that guns don't kill people, 600 rounds per minute do. The next day, the ENN wraps up the issue for us with a uh, news brief reporting the shooting of Robin, who, spoiler alert, he's going to make it, and the death of Scarapelli. Robin is cleared and does not rat chase out because he's not a rat fink bastard, which I say, you know, good for him. I don't know that Batman would approve of these tactics, but I certainly do. No, I, Batman would have done the exact same thing. You think so? You yes, think he would have kept th- it on I, th- it? I think Batman would have kept it on the DL. I mean, seriously, if it, if Harvey Dent wasn't so obviously Two-Face. And really, when you think about it, Adrian Chase is kind of Dick Grayson's Harvey Dent. Um, I think he would have kept it on the down Yeah, you know, that that's that's a very... Yeah, I hadn't even drawn that uh, that parallel. You're absolutely right. That's, uh, that's pretty much the end of the issue. Or rather, you know, not the end, as the uh, issue says, if you... Uh, <laughs> believe everything you read which i do you know uh, especially if i read it off the internet so anyway what uh what do you think about this one mike uh it has been years actually well over a decade since i first read this um i enjoy this annual so much more than new teen titans annual number one but mainly that's because i wasn't a big fan of them going off into space uh, i know that one of their characters is an alien I like the Titans on Earth, so mm-hmm. with with very few exceptions. I mean, sometimes it works. Um, I, I'll agree with you there, ex- except for the fact that uh, I love that purely for sentimental reasons because that okay. storyline was actually the first of the Wolfman Perez um, Titans that I ever read because the the that arc begins 
with a Superman appearance. And it was from the, the period of time where Superman had been split into two physical beings, yep. each with half of Superman's powers, which is the entire reason I picked that issue up. This I want to say it's issue like 24, I want to say, of New Teen Titans. And I picked it up purely because Superman was in it. And I got hooked, at least on that one storyline, which concluded with that annual number one. So, yeah, a, a lot of sentimental attachment to that, although I, I will concede that it's... Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm I'm totally with you on the DC Cosmic. I've never really cared for DC Cosmic all that much. Uh, first note is obviously the cover is awesome. Uh, I love the shot of the vigilante pointing the gun at the at the reader. I also am reminded of the fact that the reason why I comb my hair the way I do is when I was a kid. I really liked the Adam West uh, TV Batman TV show, and my mom combed my hair like Robin. Yeah. So. Um, Wow, that's kind of weird to think about. Well, but, while we're while we're admitting such things uh, to this day, I still try to comb my hair like Burn Superman. So I, I'm with you. I, I, we we share a similar uh, geek factor there. The uh, the art, uh, just blanket statement. The artwork is amazing throughout this entire issue. I have some specific mm-hmm. notes, but holy crap, is this thing like just the the, the freaking awesome. Um, the uh, the first page we have, as you said, the Expositional News Network, uh, which doesn't sound really like a, what a newscaster would say, but whatever. But it begins a running gag throughout the entire annual that I thought wasn't funny the first time, and Wolfman keeps beating it into the ground. Amen, brother. That's uh, my, my first note. Yes. Is is there's always like, and after this message from Fish and Stick, the new sushi-flavored peanut butter. It's just like... No, uh, actually, newscasters don't introduce, as far as I know, maybe they did it in the 80s, I could be wrong, but I don't ever remember seeing a newscaster introduce the uh, the product they're about to pitch, basically. Well, plus, doesn't so, it, don't, don't you feel like it kind of interferes with the tone of this yes, entire story? Exactly. It, it's just, it's, it's just not necessary. Mm-hmm. Not necessary at all. Um... Page three, Jesus, Robin is cut. Those, that is one athletic-looking young man. No one will pick on him in that costume because he'll kick you in the face. Good Lord. And as we have said on countless occasions, Perez draws the, Rob, the Pixie Boots Robin costume just about the best of any artist I have ever seen. Absolutely. That is not, that is not to say that other artists haven't, like... Uh, uh, who, what's the guy that I'm thinking, Rick, uh, Rich Buckler mm-hmm. could draw a mean Robin. I liked his, the Robin of his that I've seen, but, uh, Perez is my favorite. So I especially like that middle panel on page three when he looks all kinds of pissed off and the capes kind of flowing behind him mm-hmm. just surely on his anger. And yeah, after this word from rat trap, it squashes rats dead. Um, Page four, we uh, we get this scene between the godmother and uh, and the mobster that had Chase's family killed, and she wants all of his files, and wants wants him to bring it to her tonight, and then that's completely forgotten for the rest of the issue. Well, it sort of is and it sort of isn't because this is the nature of his falling out with the mob because he realizes that the moment he hands that to her, 
that's it. He he has okay. no leverage to to save his own ass from from her. But 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 and, here's my problem. Uh huh. She says, "Get it to me by tomorrow morning," and it's several days before they see each other. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I got. That's what I meant by kind of forgotten. Right. I, I should have made that clearer. You're absolutely right. But it's just like you have till tomorrow morning or a couple days from now. I'm easy. Right. <laughs> so. I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm sorry. I no, just... no, I, I'm sorry, because I feel like I keep jumping in on your no, notes. You're good. I'm, you're good. I'm trying not to do, but uh, it's okay. funny. She made me laugh because she reminded me of, and now I'm going to draw. Guccione from. Guccione, uh, yes, from or The Punisher. Gucci or whatever, yeah. Yeah, Gucci, Mama Gucci, yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. I have um, recently, just to kind of keep things interesting and... Uh, on Bailey's Batman podcast, I've added New Teen Titans to the reading pile. I'm not covering the book, but I kind of want to keep up with what's going on with Dick Grayson as well. And Jason Todd actually makes a couple early appearances in uh, New Teen Titans. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm kind of now up to speed on this era again because it's been so long since I've read it. And th- this whole subplot with Starfire whining about Robin is just annoying the piss out of me uh, <laughs> as I'm reading it. Uh, I mean, I understand it's high drama in the Wolfman Claremont fashion, but still, when Robin doesn't like me, oh, why won't he talk to me? It's just like, you know, okay, one, if Robin won't talk to you, he's a moron. You may have little orphan Annie eyes, but you are stacked like the Library of Congress. But so she also becomes, to a large degree, like the stereotypical clingy girlfriend. Yeah. And that seems against her character, you know, because she's, I mean, she comes from this warrior background and all that. And that seems to just kind of be forgotten until it's not, you know. So, yeah, I know exactly what you mean, because not too long ago I, I did a reread of some of the early Titan stuff, and the second time around I, I found Starfire's character to be very inconsistent story arc to story arc. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's kind of weird. Um, page six, Tara calls Robin cute knees. <laughs> I don't understand how that's a... Um... How, how that's a, a term of endearment or even an insult. Um, page six at the bottom, the shot of Robin as the announcement about what happened to Adrian Chase. Uh, I love the look on his face, the anger, the outrage, the sadness. This is what I don't like, and I don't know if they ever play with this, but it seemed to be a seed that Wolfman planted. Mr. Chase suffered what is known as clinical death. He was declared dead for approximately seven minutes before the flow of oxygen oxygen to his brain recommenced. So what it says to me is that now Adrian Chase is insane, and that's why he's killing people Mm. and becoming a vigilante. Now, I could be wrong on that, and if I am, tell me, because I'm interested. See, I have scattered issues of the vigilante, but he's not a character I'm very familiar with, and... While I like him in concept, two things put me off of that character. Well, actually, three things. Um, for one, he looks like Gary Seven, and I could never get past that. Um, he also looks like uh, Kent, an older Kent Nelson. Yes, yeah, he does. 
Um, he's obviously DC's answer to the Punisher. Mm-hmm. And third and probably most importantly, I don't think the Punisher could exist in the DC universe. And uh, yeah. I think that that was uh, evidenced perfectly in an epi- in a issue. See, there we go again. I'll say issue sode. In an issue sode of DC Comics Presents where Superman and the Vigilante teamed up. How the hell does that happen? That shouldn't happen. You would think that Superman would instantly, you know, okay, that's it. You're busted and, and cart him off to, you know, Justice League jail. I, I just don't see him being allowed to function in the DC universe, certainly not interacting with the other heroes of that universe. That maybe that maybe I'm wrong. That's just my impression of how DC works versus Marvel. Uh, page seven. No, six- I, I want to get your take on that. Oh, I, oh what, I'm what sorry. You- okay. Um, I agree to a certain extent. I, I, I think a character like this should exist in the DC universe, mainly because it balances it out a little more. But you're right. How would he function when he would run up against somebody like Superman or Batman, who obviously would want to take him down? Mm-hmm. Um, anti-heroes have never been DC strong suit. Right. Uh, well, at least they weren't DC strong suit in the 70s and 80s. In the 90s and up to today, it's, I mean, most of them are anti-heroes. So, yeah, that's my pithy comment for the episode. But. You know, when you have a world where you have Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Flash, Hawkman, Martian Manhunter to a certain extent, because he was kind of off and on through the 70s and 80s, um, and Captain Marvel and all that, who are all pretty decent people who have that whole, you know, code against killing thing, a character like Vigilante is an anathema. He's not... He's not somebody that fits in with the mold, but there's dramatic potential there. How does a world that is used, and they kind of talk about it at the end of this issue, how does a world that is used to squeaky clean heroes, and I use that term with air quotes, by the way, how do they deal with a guy that's suddenly putting a cap in somebody's ass? Right. So I, I think it's a worthy thing to explore, but it's not something that should be the norm with new heroes in in the DC universe because it's just not a universe built for that kind of justice. I'm not saying that the the world of DC is sanitized cuz Gotham City is a hole in the earth that right. needs that has been stomped and needs to be walked dry. So you know there are sections of Metropolis like Suicide Slum which are uh, pl- uh, scenes of horrible depravity happen there every day. So bad things happen in the DC universe, but it never, to me, feels comfortable. I think it's why the overall tone of DC uh, from like 2003 on has always kind of bothered me because I don't think DC should be a universe uh, where ba- where dark things happen constantly and the heroes don't get along because that's not DC, that's Marvel. Right. Marvel functions that way. I want. I like the universe where maybe not everybody gets along. I mean, you can have moments where Superman and Batman don't like each other. Hell, that was like most, like 10 years of their relationship from 86 to like 96 when they started being in the Justice League together. So it works, when, but at the end of the day, they're going to work together and not fight each other because they're going against, you know, 
a similar cause. You know, Superman is a by the book. I'm going to be duly deputized by the police. Batman's like, screw that. Have you seen the guy at the police department? I don't want to participate in a bake sale with these people, much less be deputized by them. You know, I like Jim Gordon. I like that bullet guy, that Renee Montoya girl. She's cute. Maybe I should ask her out. She keeps turning me down. I have no idea why. (laughs) Um, But it's just, I don't think it's, it's a world where the Punisher type character would really exist comfortably. Um, And maybe that was the point of the series. I mean, I have like almost a complete run. I'm missing like 10 issues. Um, And some I need to get new copies of because they're kind of wonky. Uh, They got dirt on them somehow uh, from the person I bought them from. (laughs) So, so I'd like to read it, but it seems like after a while, it just, just looking at the covers, I get the feeling that it meandered, but I don't want to say that because it was written by Paul Kupperberg, who I like. Right. So didn't more uh, Alan Moore write some issues of that as well? I think he did. Yeah, uh, I'd have to look at it. I recently went through all my comics for this one day sale. I'm going to be going to on Friday, uh, as of this recording Friday. So uh, I got to look through all like my DC collection again and just realized how many issues of this series I have. Um, <laughs> was but, it was uh, it you that I was with at one of those uh, Atlanta comic conventions and you picked up? Or no, I think that was. Uh, my friend Adam was, yeah, was, was uh, trying to, com- yeah, that's right. Yeah, he was trying to complete a, a collection of Vigilante, and he got a ton of them out of uh, some cheap, I want to say like 50 cent or maybe even quarter boxes or something like that. I, I recently got a, a Vigilante uh, a number one. Um, like I say, I know I've got a, a, a decent scattering of issues. I've, I've really just not ever read all that much of it, but it's not that I'm not intrigued by it or anything like that. It's just... I think ultimately my problem, and, and I will concede that it's dur- it's mostly during this era because I was just thinking that eventually we would see characters like, say, Hitman mm-hmm. and, and characters like that. But during this time of DC, I just I can't see this character existing in a universe that has Superman because at this time, everybody's still pretty much... Um, spun out of superman if you know what i mean and i think superman um policed his own if you know what i mean yeah and so i i think that a guy like you know the minute that superman would learn that there's somebody out there who fancies himself a hero yet he's killing people i don't think that that would be allowed to stand i I think superman would take an active hand in that and and because he would see it as a reflection on himself or his his people so to speak and i just don't see that being allowed to stand i think that's why we never really got very many you know gun-toting uh killing heroes or even anti-heroes i mean there have been you know some but not a whole lot of them because they just really don't function properly in that universe i don't know that that's that's my half baked theory on the on the whole thing. Well, half baked better than none. I mean, <laughs> sure, you're still gonna get like you know, E. coli poisoning, but <laughs> still it tastes a little better. Um, 
page seven, I, I don't know if I said this before, we get the five panels of why we're covering this book in the first place, and mm-hmm. they're hardly mentioned again. Uh, <laughs> we get to see Lila and, uh, and the monitor. Uh, I now have a definitive voice for the monitor in my head, thanks to graphic audio, uh, doing their Crisis on Infinite Earths adaptation, uh, which was them doing the novel novelization of Crisis, which was flawed. I guess is the best way I really want to say that. I guess I need to listen to that at some point. I'm, I'm a little bit afraid to because I, you know, as I've said many, many, many times, Crisis is my favorite story. It's my Watchmen, so I, I don't, I wouldn't want it to not measure up. And I never made it through Wolfman's um, how could prose a guy that novel wrote the original just mess up his own story yeah i i I didn't i wasn't enjoying that so i never i never finished it and i would be afraid to listen to the audio book for the same or you know the audio drama for the same reason that i it's got some good performances i just the the biggest flaw of that book is the fact that the flash narrates most of it yeah that it has all of these moments that where the heroes the tide was turned for the heroes because the the ghost of the Flash managed to do something to save the day, and I'm just like that's 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 poor storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know that that crisis isn't complicated when you read it from beginning to end. It's got a pretty linear storyline, even though it's dealing with the past and the future and multiple Earths. It goes pretty much straightforward. So when you take the novelization and it mixes and matches parts of the story where you're witnessing stuff from like issue eight in the first chapter and we haven't even gotten to the first you know the first you know the adaptation of the first issue it's just like wow how i've read this mini that maxi series dozens of times i know it backwards and forwards i'm lost listening to this thing performances are great because graphic audio does quality work See, they do. I, I know I'm I'm setting myself up for potential, you know, some serious hate mail with this, but I, I think it's got to be said. One of the reasons I didn't uh, finish that novel, and I and it didn't, it failed to connect with me right off the bat, was as you say, it's written as if it's the Flash's story. You know, it's it's all from his perspective. He's narrating everything, and that instantly put me off with it because much like Craven the Hunter or Mysterio and some other characters I could mention, I the Flash never connected with me. I, I always found him to be uh, an essentially boring character. And this was the one time I liked him because the guy that runs fast finally does something useful and it kills him, you know? And I liked that element of the story. And so suddenly turning that into this is the crux of everything Crisis was about, and it's the flashest. It was like no, no, you're you're ruining a great moment. You're you're taking something that I I looked at and said, wow, you know, I never liked this guy, but you gotta hand it to him. He took one for the team. In the long run, he redeemed himself. Exactly. No, definitely. Definitely, definitely. Oh, good. I, I was afraid <laughs> for a moment. No, I, there, I was afraid that you were going to be like, "No, dude, you got it all wrong." But I, I'm sorry. That's just how I feel. I, I hate to diss the Flash. I just, to me, he's that's all he's ever been. He's the guy that runs fast. Whoopty shit, you know. But in this story, 
you know, he he took that and he was, you know, for that issue, what was it, eight, issue eight, he was the hero of the story. But that's it. That's issue eight. That's not the entire series. And so that book leading right off was saying, you know, hi, I'm Barry Allen and this is my story. It's like, no, no. See, the, the, the thing about, I, I like Barry Allen more than you do. I think that's fair to say. I've read a lot of Barry Allen books, uh, Barry Allen Flash stories. Um, I like a lot of the Silver Age stuff. I like all the stuff uh, starting with the death of Iris and the years worth of Flash stories that came after that were freaking amazing. But there were long stretches where you're absolutely right. He was kind of a boring character. Mm -hmm. Um, And... where I do agree with you is the fact that it wasn't the Flash's story. It was the story of the DC universe. It started with the first boy with Anthro in the second issue, you know, making like a major appearance. And then, you know, you have an appearance by Commandy in the very same issue. It's all about, you know, the original story, the original title was History of the DC Universe. Right. And then it became Crisis History of the DC Universe, and then Crisis on Infinite Earths. It is a celebration, even though I disagree with the creator's assertions that the multiple Earths were confusing, I think that's a bunch of BS uh, of the highest order. But at least when they were putting the house back together again, when they were doing their renovations, they were taking pictures of the old place just so people would remember it. And that's one of the reasons why I appreciate Crisis. And, you know, wow, we've actually brought it back to what we were talking about. Um, (laughs) No, and it's why I'm glad we're doing this because, you know, if you're going to chronicle the Crisis, uh, you need to start, and I think you touched on this in the first episode of Crisis Management, uh, you know, you need to start with where it really began as far as the monitor. Yes, And these early appearances are important. Yes, they may take up... I think you could probably do a 22-page book with all of the Monitor's uh, pre-crisis appearances. I'm amazed, amazed that DC has not reprinted this in some sort of trade collection of the pre-crisis Monitor appearances and released it as a... uh, a supplement to like say the absolute crisis edition mm-hmm. or something like that because i i do find these stories to be essential reading i really really do much more so than say the crossovers that happened during the event itself you know I, that's not to say that there weren't some really fantastic crossovers some of which really add to the tapestry of crisis but there's just as many that are complete bullshit that had the banner you know, crisis crossover, but it didn't have a goddamn thing to do with the story. But these stories are essential because, as you say, these are are how did you put it? The the pictures of the house before you move away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, I think that's before a, you renovate it. Basically. Exactly, that's a beautiful analogy, a perfect analogy. It really is because as we're going to be, uh, as I said in the beginning of this, you know, traveling to every corner of the DC multiverse, this is exactly what's going to be happening. We're, we're going to see snapshots of DC, how it existed at the time. That's what the pre-crisis monitor appearances ultimately equate to is a, is a picture in time of how it was. And then we get the story that, that sort of 
sort of changes it all to a, to a certain degree. See, I, I always hesitate. And, you know, it's funny. I was listening to, uh, I believe it was an episode of Andy's show of uh, Hey Kids Comics where he, um, he, he, I think he qualified Crisis as, as a reboot. I really need to re-listen to the episode if I can remember which one it was because I really meant to to write him a letter about it and not so much take him to task but just kind of argue my case on the other side because, see, I do not see Crisis as a reboot at all. I see it as um, essentially what it set out to do, which was a consolidation of what already existed. Did characters get rebooted? Absolutely. Superman is definitely rebooted after crisis, but the universe was not. And I think the strongest uh, argument for that was that, uh, that's what Wolfman uh, wanted. Isn't, am I remembering that story correctly? That he, he he wanted everything to start over with the new number. Exactly. And Jurgens wanted the same thing for zero hour. Right. And they, and they didn't do that. I mean, so that right there in my book, uh, that disqualifies it from being proclaimed as a reboot because it wasn't. I mean, some things started over, some things didn't, um, and some things had to kind of uh, do a bit of a juggling act to fall in line with the new continuity. But overall, what existed before existed afterward just um, in, a, in a new way. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know we'll, we'll we'll be getting into all that as well. So, um, page eight, I I really like the shot of Robin on the stand because it's it's it just takes mm-hmm. you back to a time period where Batman and Robin were able to somehow through some legal stipulation give testimony in court with masks on. <laughs> right. Uh, I do like the shot of his motorcycle at the bottom. Yeah. Uh, th- that's really neat. Page nine, Robin looks completely badass in that fifth panel where he's standing there mm-hmm. waiting for the, the mobster to make a move. And on the next page, he open- his his opening move is to kick somebody in the damn face. So <laughs> I liked that a lot. Those um, two pages right there are, for me, those are exhibit A. And why I will defend pixie booted Robin with my dying breath. Yeah. You know, I people can say they can make every argument they want for it being silly or or golden agey or whatever, but you take these two panels and damn it, Perez makes it work. Because mm-hmm. as you say, that fifth panel, that's pixie booted Robin, and there's nothing laughable about that picture. He looks bad ass. He yes. looks totally prepared to kick your ass, and it's awesome. It, it really, I, I love Perez's take on Robin. I, I, you know, I don't think anybody ever did it better. I really don't. I mean, other artists were were just as capable of of making him this awesome as well. You know, like you said, Buckler, and I would also throw in uh, Mike Grell. Oh, Mike Grell, definitely Jim Aparo. Yep, Jim Aparo. Definitely Jim Aparo. So, um, page eleven, more whiny Starfire. But I like the <laughs> fact that the guy sh- trying to shoot them gets taken out. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, Cheryl Ladd is apparently going to portray Mother Teresa. Thank you for dating the story. <laughs> um, 
I go back and forth on reference on on pop culture references, uh, present day quote unquote pop culture references in comics. Uh, I like the fact that on page thirteen, not all the Titans are really sold on what Robin wants to do. Yeah, and it, and it leads to an interesting dynamic and and, and some interesting scenes between. Um, Wonder Girl and Robin, but I'm on the bottom of that page. Uh, Cyborg asks Flash where Raven is, and he goes, "No, and frankly, I couldn't care less." And this was all part of that whole thing that originally Wally was in love with her, but then he saw that she had an evil side and hated her, and it was just, it was just kind of meandering. Um, pages fourteen and fifteen could have come. Completely done with the, uh, the Azeroth stuff. Um, I like Raven as a character. I got real sick of her. I, uh, you know, I have evil inside of me and my home won't even, you know, if all these people were like all, pe- you know, for, for a group of people that is all about peace, love, and, you know, come on people now, smile on each other, everybody <laughs> gather around, let's love one another right now. They look really pissed off at her. On page four, yeah, she looks like she's 15. getting balled out by Shazam at the bottom yeah. of that page. <laughs> the elders of the universe are <laughs> chosen by the elders. Um, you're absolutely right about pages uh, 16 and 17 of the Titans kicking all kinds of ass. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, I love this group. I love the new Teen Titans. Uh, page 18, we've talked about it before, but here's Exhibit A of how Perez made the Robin costume multi-layered. Yes. Because Robin's sitting there, and it's popped open, and you see that he's reading, wearing kind of a green leotard under under that, and that it's an actual vest instead of it all being connected. So, seriously, love the crap out of that. Well, I like uh, at the bottom of page 18 that uh, we, we're not really done with the monitor there because we get that great four panels where Donna flies out of Titan's Tower and she flies past the moon. But then the moon, as we zoom in on it, we see the monitor satellite. Yeah. And or, that's awesome. And that's why in a lot of ways this book, to me, kind of set the template for future monitor appearances much more than the one I covered last time where it was well, I think it was two panels and that was that was it. Whereas in this one it, it kind of carries through the whole story. The monitor doesn't just pop in and do something and then that's it and you're left to go, well what was that? He actually really plays an essential part in this story because he facilitates the uh the bad guys, you know, the the evil team that the Titans fight. I like that he's so he's a little more involved in this story, yet still is mysterious. Definitely, I'll agree with that. Um, the assembling of the bad guys teams made me uh, the bad guy team made me really really nostalgic for eighties comic books <laughs> because on the face of it, these guys are kind of silly. Oh yeah. But I love them just the same because it's just like, wow, we just created like eight new characters here and they all are like kind of one note, two dimensional villains, but man, they make great punching bags for the heroes. (laughs) Seriously, dude, we got a flamethrower. We got a guy who throws spears. He will say politically correctly. We got a guy that has a bazooka. I love the, the fact that, um, 
the monitor is, or Lila, I guess, uh, not the monitor, is like talking to these people like they're all on the same side. Right. And I guess this was still the time period where the monitor was a, uh, you know, was going to be a bad guy, basically. Uh, and then they changed that later. Uh, I, I have to agree with you about Misty Knight on uh, page 21. Wow. <laughs> um, Tanker. In addition to having a great name, I love the fact that he wants to make extra cash for the holidays. (laughs) Now, if if you don't mind telling me about that Scarpelli job, I may be interested in some extra cash for the holidays. It's like, well, it's nice to think that bad guys also want to get some extra money to buy presents for people. (laughs) That's nice. Uh, Page 22, we see Cheshire, who I am ambivalent about. Um... I think visually she's a stunning character. I just never really got into the whole Roy Harper her thing. Yeah. Um, my opinion, other you know, others may feel differently. Page twenty three. I love the faces of the Titans on the page on on the left side of the page as everything's introduced, and then in alphabetical holy, order. Yeah, Changeling, Cyborg, Kid Flesh. Oh my God, you're right. Um, it's not the first time Perez has done that either. Awesome. But this fight scene is freaking badass because the Titans are getting their collective asses handed to them. And these are some heavy-hitting superheroes. I mean, you've got Wonder Girl, who's ostensibly, you know, I don't know if she's less powerful than Wonder Woman, but she's pretty damn strong. you got Cyborg, you got Terra, you got Kid Flash. You know, Changeling is, uh, you know, arguably the weakest of the bunch, but he can still hang with the best of them. And Cheshire freaking owns Starfire throughout this entire fight. How the hell does that happen? Right. Um, I love the fact on page 27 that Changeling's wings get cut as he's a fly and then his shoulder is bleeding when he changes back to human form. That's just cool. That is That's, cool. That is just great. But I love the fact that through it all, the only reason that they win is the fact that, well, let's, let's, we've already revealed it, Vigilante's killing people all throughout the fight mm-hmm. and saving them at the last minute. So, I mean, these guys are cannon fodder in every sense of the word. Um, this last scene with... Uh, the godmother I, I i don't want to call her the godmother because then i want to call her the fairy godmother <laughs> <sighs> and, and scarpelli or however you say his name I'm, I'm always screwing that up i like the fact that the titans show up and are and tell the godmother and her people you need to get out of here like right freaking now mm-hmm. and it's just like wow you're protecting bad guys because that bad guy is the worst bad guy right now and it also speaks to the fact that, yeah, the godmother and her men are criminals, but they don't want to see him die. Right. You know, it's not the you know it's not the attitude of well let's just let them kill each other. It's like no, we save all human life, and that is that is something I kind of miss in the comics of today. It really is very much so because you know you make a great point that yeah in, in modern comics talent you know storytelling i could very much see this going uh the other way where the titans or or any you know uh of any heroes 
could do just a mopping up action. You know, let them let them weed each other out, and then we'll step in at the end rather than no, we we need to stop this before it starts, kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. Um, the the whole ending scene with uh, with Adrian revealing who he is. One, the artwork is just stunning in this whole last sequence, and I like the vigilante's costume design. Um, he's got white gloves, so obviously, hey, Punisher, <laughs> I saw you, and I and I really liked what you did with that. But um, it's really interesting to see that Robin is very much like his master. We kind of talked about this, a master, his uh, his mentor, uh, and not the guy, not the guy he drove around that summer in the Winnebago with. <laughs> Um, Batman rides the gray line a lot and I think it's one of the great things about Batman is that he will you know sometimes skirt the edges of the law because it's the right thing it's like in that untold legends of Batman story where uh, they had the flashback where Bruce Wayne is arguing with his law professor he says but that's not justice and his law professor goes, no, Mr. Wayne, but that's the law. Right. Is the law that Robin should go after Adrian Chase and bring him down? Yes. Justice is not turning in your friend because, to a certain extent, Robin has some culpability in what happened to his family. Because right. he participated on the raid that led to them getting killed. Uh, which I'm about to get to, by the way. I'm about to see the raid. Uh, as I go through into Bailey's Batman's podcast, but the artwork here is amazing. Oh, is that sh- where is that shown at? Is, um, is that in Teen Titans? Yeah, it's in Teen Titans. Oh, okay. All right, yeah. I didn't realize that. Um, I didn't remember it. So, um, just but there's just this whole scene where Robin's trying to talk him down. Scarpelli gets the drop on them. Uh seriously wounds robin hits adrian chase and he kills him but when faced with reporters robin the police have cleared you in scarapelli's murder but the question still remains did you see who killed him mr phillips i can truthfully say i was already unconscious by the time that shot was fired that is a technicality of the first magnitude no, I didn't see who killed him because I didn't see the shot that was fired. Not, I know who killed him, but I didn't see it happen. You'll notice he's averting his eyes in yeah. that panel too, which I think is uh, is great storytelling. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's it's a visual clue to us, the reader, if we didn't already know it, that he's clearly lying. You know, he's he's clearly uh, withholding something. But it, it, I really like that. I think that's very cool. Um, on the whole, the the story has a few storytelling missteps, like the whole thing, like, I want your files here by tomorrow morning, or maybe later, uh, and that whole thing. And the fact that we really don't get the vigilante till the very end of the story, even though he's been popping up all through, uh, and he's on the freaking cover... It's like, well, that's kind of wonky, but it works because we're setting up his series. This is the backdoor pilot for the Vigilante series. Right. We're using the really popular 
book to launch this. You know, we're gonna launch. We're gonna use the, the the different strokes to launch Mrs. Garrett into her own show about being uh, 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 basically a, a, a den mother at a boarding school for all girls. So, <laughs> and different strokes is really popular, so that should work. And that's you know, you take the good, you take the bad, you take it all, and there you have the facts of life. So. I can't believe you just did that. <laughs> you can't believe I said it, or you can't believe the with how it just flowed out. Ah, uh, yeah, or both. <laughs> both. <laughs> well, I am the one that will every once in a while at work break into the different strokes theme song, and when you get to a certain point of that theme song, people are like, "How the hell do you know those lyrics?" So, <laughs> no, great, fantastic. This was so worth it to read just because of how awesome the new Teen Titans was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just the fact that we can, we can, t- and, and it's kind of weird that, that this crisis management is really like an amalgam of tales and back to the bins. Yes, very much. So. Uh, it has a point to it, but we still get to dis- discuss kind of a seemingly random issue of a comic. Oh, that, yeah, that's what I like about it is that, you know, yeah, again, we're going to be getting that, the, those snapshots of, of DC as it existed pre-crisis. And I like that because we will literally be jumping, you know, to, Holy every, crap. to every corner, you know, from we're going to go, we're going to go to the future. We're going to go. Uh, I don't think we ever really go to the past. No, Jonah uh, Hex. Oh, Jonah Hex. Yes, we do. And GI Combat. Yep. So, you know, we get to we get to see all of the major heroes. Um, pretty much, uh, I think we get to see all of the Magnificent Seven mm-hmm. uh, throughout the course of this. So, wow. <laughs> see, I I love this uh, this story. You know, as spotty as my memory can be, a lot of times with uh, with back issues and in, in stories I've read. This is one that has always remained uh, very crystal clear in my in my memory because while he may be cover featured and while this may be, as you say, the backdoor pilot for the vigilante, to me, this issue was never about the vigilante. This is a Robin story. And that's what I like about it because mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of this era of Robin's life, you know, of the Dick Grayson Robin. I miss this version of the character. I mean, I like when he came into his own as Nightwing and all that, and I enjoy that character. But I do think that something was lost, something undefinable that I can't put my finger on was lost when he made the transition from being, you know, the other half of Batman and to being Nightwing. And so that's why I really enjoy going back to a story like this. And uh, I, I really like it because this is a story that that's showing Robin, uh, you know, Dick Grayson, both as Robin, but also almost... Uh, almost straining against that role. You know, you can see where he's wanting to kind of break out because there's, there's very little of, you know, the, the young lighthearted jokey pun making Robin in this, this is really Robin, you know, becoming a man and, and very much following in, in Batman's footsteps, but also, uh, working his way towards his own identity, and yeah, his obsession 
in this is awesome uh, because uh. you can see the the parallels with the Batman. How Batman would get very obsessed about certain cases, especially when they meant something to him personally. And this is a very personal Robin story. He's taken this uh, this turn of events with Chase very personally, and he's going to take this guy down. Uh, and he says it himself, no matter what it takes, even if it means, you know, harassing this guy, even if it means defying the law and court orders and everything else, he is bound to determine that one way or another, he's going to get his man. I like that. I like that a lot. And I like it that it puts him at odds with his teammates, particularly Especially Donna one, Troy, who's yeah, my other favorite say. Titan, you know? I mean, th- those two characters are really the two that kept me reading New Teen Titans because I've always been a Robin fan and I've always had a thing for, for Donna Troy. And I like the stories that both bring them together, but I really like the stories that put them at odds. And it's funny how many times while I was reading this issue, I kept flashing back to that awesome, awesome cover in the... Uh, the uh, Baxter run of Titans where where we see Donna pissed off and reflected in a broken mirror that she has obviously just knocked Nightwing into and he's yes. left on the floor bleeding it's right after the crisis. Yeah. I love that. So, yeah, I but I I just have such fond memories of this issue. I I love the story. I love Robin's drive. Uh, I think it's exciting. The artwork is absolutely gorgeous. It, it has a, a very nice edge to it. Um, there, there are, as you say, there's a couple missteps. The misplaced humor um, in a couple of things, and uh, yeah, I can't. I, I really can't believe they got away with uh, with Spear. And you know, I was flipping through this because I thought I had. Uh, read it in here somewhere and sure enough it's on page 24 fourth panel bazooka joe says hey blackie good spear chucking boy and i'm like no no he did not wow. he did not just say that but yep there it is plain as day i'm like holy crap i mean wow so yeah but I, I do enjoy this story a lot, and uh, I like b- the both the villain team uh, that was pulled together, and I, I like the fact that they're, they're pretty, uh, you know, at first they, they totally own the Titans, but in the long run, I mean, they're, they're ultimately just cannon fodder for yeah. the Vigilante, because he pretty much takes, you know, Save Cheshire pretty much takes them right out. I thought that was pretty cool, and that's where you knew. That's how you knew Cheshire had legs because she got to escape. Mm-hmm. I like this one. We're gonna keep her, Tanker. Yeah, he can die. Uh, <laughs> Bazooka Joe looks kind of cool. Bullet to the head. Yep. So, but as I said, I, I think that this one, much more than the than the first issue that we looked at, you know, the New Teen Titans. Uh, issue proper i think this one really sets the tone of the better uh pre-crisis monitor appearances that we're going to see because Mm -hmm. you know we will see other ones that are very much like the other issue you know where it's just you know he you know punish uh not punisher monitor pops in for 
you know, a panel or two and, and says one or two things and then that's it. But then the, most of them, at least to my recollection, are much more like this where at least for one issue or, or one little brief story arc, the monitor plays a part, an important part in, in facilitating something that happens, you know, to the hero of the story. And it just added to his mystique as, you know, wh- who is this guy? You know, how how does he know so much about what's going on and how is he able to facilitate and you know what what is going on with his simple act of monitoring he seems to be everywhere and he was and i like that and we're gonna definitely be shading that in more as we look at this um but that's pretty much all i got on this did you have anything else no i think i uh i think i monopolized the notes (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, I, I honestly didn't have many notes on this to begin with. Okay. So that's why I kind of jumped in when, when we were going through, because I honestly, I think I only had like three actual written notes. Um, it's more for, for me with this one, it's more about a feeling than it is about notes. I just get a great, this is a fun comic that I really enjoy reading. And I just, I love the portrayal of Robin in this. Um, I, I wish that there had been more Robin stories like this, but this is why I have fond memories looking back at this era of new mm-hmm. Titans, because this is, this is the Dick Grayson that I always liked best was, uh, you know, leader of the Titans and, and a little, and, a little darker, a little more driven. And, and, and the typical early twenties guy who doesn't know what he wants to do with his life, mm-hmm. which is why when he becomes Nightwing down the road, it's such a major step because he's he doesn't exactly do it because it's a constant you know back and forth of I don't want to be involved with the Batman I do want to be involved with the Batman you know sometimes legality and copyright will keep me from being involved with the Batman trading card wise but um you know when he first became Nightwing it's just it was just like to me when I when I finally got to read that story, I took it as him accepting his past, honoring it, but moving forward with his own destiny. Yes. And that is why, if it wasn't for Chuck Dixon, when Nightwing came back to the fold in the mid-90s, to the Batfold, uh, not only taking over for Bruce as Batman for a little while, but also becoming part of the Bat family again, to me, it, it 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 just it didn't feel right until Chuck Dixon started dealing with the character and kind of made it work for me, right? Because he was still his own man over in Bloodhaven, but you know Batman needed him; he'd call. So, and the the No Man's Land novelization really does a lot of good things explaining the reason why Nightwing is the way he is. So. Oh man, God, I love the New Teen Titans. While it had kind of a clunky beginning, it was still good from the very beginning. Something can be kind of clunky because you're fine. There is a difference between something being bad and finding your feet and seeing how this is really going to work out. And once they kind of had everything hammered out, you know, it started flying along and was just amazing throughout it, the first at least five to six years of its existence. And that's all I got. (laughs) Well, uh, let's see for next time around. And uh, this will be a while. I, I, 
I'm not sure if I explained this very well in the beginning of, uh, you know, in the first episode of this, but, you know, these shows won't come out with any regularity. They, they will literally come out as the uh, pre-crisis monitor appearances pop up, and then eventually as we get into crisis proper, um, I expect we'll use this show as kind of an overflow valve for the, the crossover uh, stories and things like that. So it'll be a little bit yet, but we are fast approaching uh, now that we're caught up because uh, these were actually uh, in in the publishing order of where we are in our coverage of All Star Squadron. These uh, two books had actually uh, they were what a few months back in mm-hmm. where we where we are. But the next one we haven't actually gotten to that month yet. So uh, the next one is in February 1984, and that will be Green Lantern number 173. So that will be the next uh, issue that we'll be looking at on Crisis Management. So I think that wraps us up for this time. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And uh, send feedback. You can send feedback to the regular place uh, for Tales, which is uh, Tales of the JSA at gmail.com. Drop us a line. Let us know what you think of the show and what you thought of the episode. And uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, New Teen Titans Annual Number 2 on the monitor, you know, pre-crisis monitor appearances on the Crisis on Infinite Earths or just about anything else you want to uh, drop us a line about. We uh, will be happy for the feedback. So uh, join us again next time. Thanks for listening. That's it for this week, folks. Be sure to visit our website at www.2truefreaks.libson.com for more exciting podcasts featuring both Michael Bailey and myself, as well as Chris Honeywell, and several other sad and pathetic human beings who have nothing better to do with their time. Join our forum at www.forumforgeeks.com, where you can comment on this week's show and interact with us and your fellow listeners. We've built a great, fun, and friendly community there, and we'd love for you to be a part of it. As always, you can reach us by email at talesofthejsa at gmail.com. And of course, both Michael Bailey and myself are on Facebook. Speaking of Facebook, if you enjoy this show, won't you please take a moment to mention us on the social networking site of your choice, whenever you're listening to one of our episodes. Word of mouth is still the best way to let others know about our show, and we really appreciate your helping us to grow our listenership. Once again, folks, thank you so much for listening, and be sure to join us next time for the tales of the Justice Society of America. Hola. Hey, what's going on, man? Not much. I just... uh today finished up catching up on i've got a few things to say about superman oh cool what you think well i have to agree with uh, andy that anybody that refers to email as old-fashioned really has no sense of history (laughs) but um (laughs) no i liked it a lot i didn't know you didn't know um that one story was written by jerry siegel which one? Oh, the Return, Return to Krypton? Yeah. yeah, I probably had heard that at some point and just forgot. But yeah, I, 
when I uh, when I researched it. Yeah, it kind of took me by surprise. I was like, oh yeah, I guess yeah, because I, I was thinking that he had stopped with Superman quite a quite a ways before that. But then again, that that issue was a or that story was reprinted in that issue. So you know, mm-hmm. he, he probably had stopped right around the time I was thinking. Um, trying to remember what year. Well, that story was 60, 60 or 61. Yeah, I think 68 was his second attempt to sue DC Comics, and yeah, they fired yeah, him. I think you're right, yeah. so But he wrote Death of Superman. He wrote that one. He wrote a lot of the epic Silver Age Superman stories before they fired him again. It's too bad. Well, in a way, on, on one hand, yes. On the other hand, if I if if I was suing you, you probably wouldn't want to podcast with me. So. Well, see, the, the the funny thing about that, and I think we have talked about this before, but the funny thing about that is this is one of those weird instances where I I see both sides of the story mm-hmm. and have extreme difficulty choosing which side. Um, choosing which side I fall on because on the one side, you know, I completely understand DC's take on it. You know, the, the, the signed a contract, they were paid end of story. You know, I mean, a contract is a contract is a contract end of story for the most part. But then on the other side, I see Siegel and Schuster's thing where, yeah, you know, that would pretty much fucking suck to come up with, you know, one of the great, you know, characters of all time, you know, somebody that's that's one of the five most recognizable characters on the planet, you know, and worth billions of dollars. And all you ever saw of that invention is is what really comes down to a pittance. You know, yeah, that sucks. But, you know, I, I'm more than willing to admit that that that's an emotional reaction. That's not really a logical argument. You know, I mean, in at the end of the day, they were paid for their services, you know, based on how shit worked back in the day, you know? Yeah. This this wasn't, you know, modern comics where somebody comes up with character X and then they're always going to be paid some sort of, you know, stipend for that. You know, it just didn't work that way. You know, it sucks, but it just didn't, you know? And, and history is is littered with figures that, you know, came up with some great invention like Coca-Cola and all they ever made was 10 bucks on it, you know? So, you know, sucks to be them, but they're not alone in that story. I mean, should everybody who ever got, got the raw end of a deal like that, you know, have, have history go back and like want to, uh, you know, give them some sort of, uh, Oh, what is it? What is it? The, 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 Certain uh, black groups are trying to. What is that called? Is it restitution oh, or uh, no reparations? Uh, reparations. That's it. Reparations. You know, I, I just don't think so. I think that opens a, a dangerous door. You know what I mean? Well, so for my end, I, again, I, I'm really weird on it as opposed to other Superman fans in that I'm kind of like you. I see both sides of the equation. I see. You know where Jerry Siegel stands, and I see where DC stand, stood at the time. And did they do some creative bookkeeping to not pay Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster money that was owed to them? Probably. I mean, Jack Leibowitz, who was one of the high muckety mucks of DC, was a freaking accountant. 
and knew how to cook books to uh, to make it more, you know, to increase the profit for the bottom line. Do I agree that the Seagulls should be allowed to sue DC? Absolutely. The law says they can. Thanks right. to Sonny Bono. Um, what I am now reading is that, and I, I'm kind of reading between the lines of certain things, but based on some documents that were actually stolen from the Seagulls' lawyer's office and allowed to remain in uh, evidence for Warner Brothers is a letter from Michael Siegel, Jerry's first son, from his first marriage. And it says, it's a letter from him to Joanne and her daughter saying, don't get in bed with this guy. All he wants to do is get control of Superman. So now it looks like maybe the lawyer might have his own agenda in this whole thing. Right. Which is why it's not being settled. Because it seems to me that the Seagulls would be like, you know, the, 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 D, the DC and Warner Brothers would give them money. They've given them money since 1976 when Neil Adams and the other artists pressured them into doing so. Right. And giving them health insurance, for Christ's sakes. And, you know, they've been getting paid. Oh, yes, they've been getting paid. Right. Well, yeah, that's the other thing, too, is that, you know, over the years, you know, it, it, it has kind of quietly come out in the background that, you know, these guys didn't die. The paupers that they were, you know, that, that, you know, that kind of was made out to be. Yeah. You know, I mean, it really, you know, I, I remember being kind of sold that story. Um, at some point that, you know, you know, I'm trying to remember where that was. It was in the pages of, I think it was some fanzine or, or something like, uh, like CBG or something like that, you know, where, you know, how horrible that, you know, here were these great men, you know, that invented Superman, you know, in the twilight of their, of their years. And, you know, they, they were going to die penniless and, you know, without health insurance and all. And I'm, you know that wasn't really the case at all. I mean, they they were far from destitute. You know when they you know because they were making what at that point they'd finally settled for something like what like a million a year or something well, like that. Well, it started out as ten thousand, which in seventy six is pretty good, right? Uh, but from what I understand in my research is that that went up with inflation, and they were able to move out to California and get a nice house, and. I, you know, they were given money. Uh, people who had no involvement in them getting screwed over decided to make it right. And um, I, I'll tell you one thing. You'll never see Bob Kane's widow doing this. Hmm. And there's a very good reason for that is that uh, Bob Kane saw the contract that uh, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster did being a better businessman. He negotiated himself a better contract. Right. And renegotiated that in 1964 for a sweet deal that basically he didn't have to do anything at all and DC would give him money. So. To which I say, you are a very smart man. <laughs> Shit, yeah, kick back. Enjoy that retirement. Apparently, one of the things he liked to do in the 60s when he moved out to California was wear a yachting outfit and go pick up women in his convertible. 
Apparently, he was quite the ladies' man. Which should make you love him all the more. <laughs> he had a waterbed. Oh, awesome. <laughs> and apparently a very liberal attitude towards sex. So, mm. And you know what? As much as I hate Gossip Gertie and those two Batman films, his wife wasn't bad looking. Um, I'm sure she was quite the hottie in her day, so... I, uh, Is that Bob Kane's wife? Yeah, that was Bob Kane's wife. Seriously? I didn't I'm know I'm not that. shitting you. <laughs> Gossip Gertie, the most obnoxious character in those two movies, was the big man's wife. Well, in that scene in the in the first one, the Burton film, that that's not him that hands the drawing to... Uh, no, it was supposed to it be. It was supposed to be him. I always wondered, what's the, what's the story uh, there? Either know? he couldn't get to England or he was sick. It was one of the two. He could not be on set that day. Because I remember there being a, a press release photo of that. Uh, of Basically of that scene, but he was actually in the photo. But then when the actual movie came out... Because I remember seeing that movie in the theater and thinking... Um, you know, when he handed uh, the drawing to What's-His-Face, and you see that it's signed Bob Kane, I thought, ooh, that was the little Stan Lee moment for this movie, but I knew what Bob Kane looked like, and I knew that that wasn't the guy. Uh, I forget exactly what happened. It might be that because it was filmed in England, I think that's it. I think because it was filmed in England, they couldn't use an American extra. Because of the union rules, uh, hmm. or something like that. Something like yeah. That's it was odd. it was a weird like, uh, it was a weird set of circumstances. Hmm. So, I mean, he got his cameo with the drawing at least that was signed Bob Kane. So. Right. Um, but no, he yeah he uh, that was his um, the. His wife was in those last two films, which seemed to, I don't know, he seemed to be more involved or at least more on the set for Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, so, I don't know. He was on set a lot, though, as was his right. <laughs> oh, wow. So, this, um, shit, I was going to tell you something. I thought about it at the store, and I completely... Oh, yeah, I, I, the, re the reason why I don't want to tell you about it is I decided that it that it was a stupid idea. That's right. What's okay. that? I was thinking of maybe having uh, this be a Back to the Bins Presents type thing, but then I realized it, it makes more sense to be a Tales of the JSA Presents because it has to do with Tales. Right. But uh, I, for some reason, I thought, well, that would... One, increase us doing uh, doing uh, Back to the Bin stuff, and two, together at least, mm -hmm. and uh, two, um, it would cross the two shows over and like create like a crossover and like a comic book thing where you have Tales of the JSA, but oh, the story continues over in Back to the Bins. But... Uh, I dismissed it immediately, which is why I wasn't going to tell you. I that. do kind of like that idea, though. We we should we could consider that for you know for some other projects sometimes. Because I do like that idea, and uh, and I definitely want to do uh, back to the bins. You know, together the both of us. 
um, say at least once a month, have, have mm-hmm. an episode where Definitely. it's, you know, where it's both of us. So yeah, I, I have no problem with that. Yeah, I, uh, I I heard you talking about that today. God, your your voice was in my head like all day long. Because <laughs> I, I had to do a little bit of driving. As long around. as I wasn't telling you to kill people or something, you're all right. No, but the tone of your voice kind of suggests that. <laughs> um, but that's just because I think you're an angry, angry man. Um, <laughs> I get that a lot. Well, you're you're increasing use of the words. Fuck! <laughs> to that. Sci-fi orders script based on DC Comics Booster Gold. Whoa, really? Yeah. Hmm. wonder what that would be like. There's what I would like to see and what's probably going to happen. Yeah. But I would like... One of these days, I really need to go back and reread the original Booster Gold series. You know, the 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 first series, and and see if it is what my memory is of it. Because to me, it, it you know, it seems like, and I'm not sure where the delineating line is exactly, but it seems like. There's the the booster I remember, and then the booster that we've gotten for the last you know umpteen well, years. And I'm I, not I've sure that that actually you exists. That. You know, I actually wanted to talk to you about that because because what is the booster you remember? I just don't remember him being such a such a um, for one that it's so self serving and just an oh yes unlikable character i remember him being very charismatic very likable very uh you know in in the original series i I remember finding him just kind of you know he he had the whole you know hip cool new hero on the block thing going but i don't remember finding his ethics or anything distasteful i i remember very much feeling like yeah, he may have been all about the green, but at the same rate, deep down, he was still a true blue hero just as much as, say, Superman or anybody else, you know? And at some point, and I, I think I would largely blame the Justice League, you know, him being in the Justice League for it, is he became this, like, ass-clown character that was just had very few redeeming qualities. He was all about money. He was It was just one scheme after another, and he just became kind of a, a a sleazy loser, and I really do not like that depi- depiction of him at all. And that seems to be the character that we always get to a point where, when you know, it was announced that that basically Jurgens was coming back to his to his character, you know, his creation. I, I was all excited about it, and th- that's why I was so tremendously disappointed in that title, you know, Booster Gold Volume 2, because even he seemed to embrace that version of the character. And I was like, no, you know, that that's not, you know, like, for one thing, I always thought that Booster had a bit bit of the Peter Parker in him, you know, where he had done bad in the future, he'd he'd screwed his life up, you know, and and he came back in time, and again, yes, he was all about making money and and wasn't completely just altruistic like Superman, 
you know, but he wasn't just in it for the money either. He, he actually was a hero and he was trying to make up for, for past wrong, you know, the, the, the way he had been when he was, you know, in his original timeline. And that was, to me was what made him an exciting character was that, you know, he, he was a hero deep down and he was trying to do the right thing, but at the same rate, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't uh, too proud to, to make a dollar off of it as well. And in I liked the, that. In the first, I would say, six to ten issues, Booster was kind of a self, was a conceited, kind of a jerk. Uh, it's why I liked the character, though, when I first read the series, is because we're presented with a hero that's completely different from what we've seen before in the DC universe. Right. You know, he, w- he was in it for the money. But as the series progressed... He started, one, owning up to his own past, or future, and two, becoming more of a hero. I always got the sense by the end of the series, he was almost ready to chuck it, especially after his sister died. Yeah. Um, I think Justice League International, uh, I think he was very good in that series at first, but they got way too goofy with those characters. Yes, yes. and it, it's like the joke's not funny anymore, basically. You know, it, it, it's 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 funny when him and Booster are together because you do it. The, <laughs> there is something, and I think you and I can relate to this about hanging out with somebody that just brings out the worst traits in you. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I mean, because I didn't com- I didn't completely hate the the blue and the gold you know what i mean yeah i I liked that concept and you know that that kept getting bandied about as a possible spin-off you know whether it would be a series or a mini or whatever that kept getting bandied about for it seemingly years and i remember being very excited about that and very much for the idea you know very much you know to the point where i think i had actually had that on my pull list at some point at whatever shop I was going to, you know, during those years when I was buying that title that, you know, on the off chance this ever materializes, pull this book for me kind of thing. And then it just never did. Mm -hmm. But as that story progressed, you know, in the background of Justice League, I, I became more and more dissatisfied with it as they became more and more not so much just a couple of pals that you know were were pal, you know joking around as they became a couple of kind of assholes you know and and I wasn't yeah. really happy with that depiction because not only was I a big booster fan but I liked uh, blue beetle too I mean I became mm-hmm. a blue beetle fan with Ted Cord's blue beetle you know so I didn't really like to see either one of them and especially uh especially blue beetle because he never you know booster always kind of had that that bad boy image to a certain degree right from the get-go because you pretty much knew right from issue one of booster gold that you know like i say he wasn't above doing the hero thing to make a buck whereas blue beetle seemed completely out of character after a, a short amount of time with the whole you know, one scheme after another kind of thing because yeah. he was he was a hero in his you know in everything I'd ever read prior to the way he was depicted in Justice League. He was just you know he was your your 
pseudo Batman Spider Man mashup character. I that... loved his series. Yeah, I, yeah, I that Lynn Ween and the Paris Cullen artwork and how mm-hmm. frenetic it was, and how he was just this rich guy, you know, kind of like Batman, but without any of the freaking angst, uh, but just as good at, his, yes. at at kicking some ass. And you know, it, it's kind of funny. Me and my friend Chuck Rowland, who was my roommate at one point, he was the best man at my wedding. We sat down and planned out 25 issues of a Blue and the Gold series uh, when we were living together because we would talk about doing comics together all the time. He would draw, I would write, we would co-plot. And at issue 25, we had something happen to, uh, to the Beatle, actually, and we were going to bring in Blue Devil uh, to continue with the Blue and the Gold because we're like, mm-hmm. you know, I love Blue Beetle, but man, Blue Devil kicks ass too. And it would be fun to play with him and still because I I look at Booster Gold, Blue Beetle and Blue Devil as kind of like a triangle of titles. Right. Even though they really have nothing to do with each other, they all have. Well, at least two of them have Paris Cullen artwork um, in common, but Did they the all Beetle have and the devil ever cross over. Or am I confusing that when the when Blue Devil and Firestorm crossed? over? Uh, that was Blue Devil and Firestorm. OK. But they all felt they all had a similar kind of not lighthearted because serious things would happen, but kind of a like a fun base, fun old comics. Yes, exactly. And Booster was the most deep and meaningful of them because Dan Jurgens was playing with a guy that wasn't was a hero, but he was trying to make a buck off of it. And it was only after a certain amount of time that he realized that that wasn't everything that should be about it. And that's why when he was introduced, when he was brought back in 52 and he was that kind of character again, I was like, well, that's kind of interesting to take him back to it. And that's why his arc in 52, when he becomes supernova to kind of because he realizes he's kind of blown it and needs to disappear to basically hunt down Mr. Mind because he knows something's up with Skeets. He doesn't know it's Mr. Mind yet. Uh, that's why I kind of liked his end of that whole story because he was, it was kind of the rise and the, the, the fall and rise of Booster Gold where he. he due to the machinations of the bad guy, completely lost everything and had to kind of start over from scratch. I know you don't care for it all that much. I kind of liked the idea of him being the secret hero that he was in the Booster Gold series and it being kind of a uh, time travel type series uh, with him and Rip Hunter writing the rights that once went wrong and hoping that the next leap would be the leap home. But uh, that's just. See, that, but I dropped the book, so that should tell you something. Yeah, it, <laughs> it was it was a combination of factors. It was a combination of, for one, co- that was when comics were starting to get pricey, in you know, in my opinion, to a point where you really had to weigh: Am I enjoying this? You know, mm-hmm. X dollars worth. You know, there was that was a strong factor. Was that I didn't hate every issue or anything, but I just wasn't enjoying it enough to justify Mm -hmm. the cost of buying it new that was a that was a major factor 
two was that I just didn't feel like it was uh, living up to what I had built up in my mind that, you know, if Booster ever regained his series, uh, you know, how mega friggin' awesome it would be. And it just wasn't somehow. It was like, you know, that can't go home again syndrome. I liked the idea in theory, like you say, you know, the being in the background, you know, the greatest hero nobody ever knew or whatever, however they build him. It was an interesting idea, but my my ultimate problem with it was, for one, um, Jurgen's embracing asshole booster instead of the booster he had created. In, again, in my in my recollection, in my opinion, but also time travel stories in a medium that doesn't truly age and that you can't reference a year does not work for me at all. If you're going to say that you're traveling back in time to a Batman story in 1964, but you're not going to give me the year that doesn't really work for me. You know, I I just uh, that anal retentive button in, in my head, you know, it, it gets stuck down the entire time that, you know, Booster never said, well, let's jump back to 1988 or whatever, you know, for, you know, Batman killing joke and some, you know, stuff like that. You know, they, if you'll notice when they do stories like that, and this isn't isolated just to Booster Gold, but, you know, when they go back to like way, way back to like, you know, medieval times or even the old West with Jonah Hex or something, they'll give you a year. Or if they jump into the future with the Legion of Superheroes or something, they'll give you a year. They jump back to an old Batman story. They won't give you a year, and that no. kind of just irritates the shit right yeah, out of me. You know, it, it, I can't. It's almost help it. like it just five does. years ago is the best you're going to get right. in a Batman flashback like that because right. they don't want to commit to it, the year exactly. And and I, I I can't turn it off. It just ah, oh, it just dry, It just makes me crazy. It really does. You know, I almost wish that they would say, you know what, fuck this whole, you know, funny timeline thing. We're gonna have Booster Gold go back to 1964, and he goes back and he gets a, you know, a, a Silver Agey Batman in that story. I, I I would be perfectly okay with that. You know, I, I honestly would because at least you're being true to the date the story came out. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. I, I, but at the same rate, I am will, I'm perfectly willing to acknowledge that that would make other people abs. You know, there's just as many people out there that that would make them batshit crazy. That no, 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 no. Batman didn't exist in the DC universe. Yeah. <laughs> in 1964. No fucking way did he exist. You know what I mean? So it. I understand that. You know, it's one of those scenarios where there's really, you know, there's no you know, crowd pleasing way to do that, you know, to where everybody walks away happy. You know, there's certain concessions that have to be made. And that's why ultimately, you know, booster gold time master just didn't really work for me. I'd, I much rather would have had him, you know, I, I'd I'd be happier with him just coming back and, and kind of picking up where he left off in his life in the original series, you know, but one good thing they, they did have, and uh, I'm almost afraid to ever, you know, pick the series back up for fear that maybe they would have undone it at some point. But I did like that they brought Michelle back because that was something I, I remember being just crushed in the original series when they killed his sister. I was like, oh, my God. I mean, that 
was such a game-changing moment for Booster, and then it was right, it, as I recall anyway, wasn't that pretty much right toward the end of the series? Yeah, it was like issue issue 19 or 20, because yeah. 21... No, it was issue 21, because 23 was the crossover. No, it wasn't. 21 was the crossover with action. 23 and 24 were the last two issues. Right. So they crossed over into Millennium. It seemed um, like it left Booster... It seemed like it left the series on a real down note. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? And that he, the character was never really the same after that. So I thought, you know, that was one of the things that I was very excited about in that series. You know, one of the, one of the few moments in that series where I, I remember like, you know, doing a, you know, a fist pump, you know, figuratively speaking, going, yes, I love this, you know, because they, they righted a wrong booster personally you know yeah it's kind of like the first uh like two years uh, two yeah two years of J- jsa when it came out in 1999 where they just went through and systematically okay we're gonna bring hector hall back right yeah and we're gonna fix the whole thing with extant and oh by the way we're gonna finally fucking straighten out hawkman and that's one of the reasons why i loved that series it's like thank someone's thinking of me when they're writing this book to fix all this shit because i'm rereading jsa right now i've gotten to issue eight and it is such a solid freaking series oh, right yeah. from the start i'm so looking forward to us getting to cover that i really am me i think too. it's gonna be we'll, we'll be about so uh, that's gonna be a lot of fun because there is just the yeah, I mean, but, you know, well, you'll be 75 and I'll be, like, in my late 60s, but that's entirely beside the point. Uh, it's just how it works. You know, the more I learn about the personalities of uh, of the comic book industry, the more I become very depressed about the comic book industry as a whole. Uh, now, do you mean that as far as, you know, the, the, the new people or just across the board? Ah, uh, new and old, where you find out all the fucking infighting and at Marvel. Oh, and yeah, DC, okay, yeah, 80s yeah. and shit like that. Yeah, I know, I know what you But, mean. you see, finding that new comic book creators are assholes doesn't surprise me, because they're all my age, and I know plenty of assholes my age, so it doesn't fucking surprise me that Brian Michael Bendis would be kind of a D-bag. I get that, because that's that's one of the things that makes me actually nervous now to... You know, now that we, I, I feel like I finally joined, you know, fandom, you know, a, a larger world of fandom to where I'm now going to shows and meeting creators and stuff like that. You know, while it's really awesome and everything, f- to a large extent, I don't have that giddy, nervous fanboy thing anymore. You know, I've come to realize they're, they're just Joes, you know, they're just Joes like everybody else, you know. And to a large degree, um, seeing them that way actually makes me a little more nervous to to meet them, you know, for the first, you know, for for the first time for particular ones, because I'm afraid that they're not going to live up to some image that I've built up in my mind. You know what I mean? It like burn to this very day. I mean, if there if there was suddenly a, a convention announced or I found out he was going to be at some convention I was heading to or what. I I would have to have a serious debate with myself whether I would actually approach him or not. After all the the horror stories I've heard 
about how he really is because I, I don't want, you know, my image of him to, to get holes punk, you know, poked in it. You know what I mean? I, mm-hmm. I don't want him to turn out to be this, you know, big, incredible ass that, that would, you know, pull a, a box lightener on me and just crush me. You know what I mean? So I still feel bad for you about that. <laughs> no, I really do. I mean, it's, you know, because you seem to really like the guy beforehand, and he was kind of a douche. Yep. Well, you know, it's it's funny. I, I actually felt um, justified about, you know, because every once in a while I think back on that, and I think, is it me? Am I being too hard? Because every time we, we take a, a shot at him on Two True Freaks, I think... Are we going too far? Was it was it just me, or did we just catch him at a bad time? Or you know what I mean? Because I mean, you know, I'm not always you know, you know, spoiler, but I'm not always Prince Charming either. You know, I have my moments where I I can be an asshole. Everybody does. So I, I you know I, I was willing to concede in this instance that maybe I just caught him at a bad moment. But then uh, I'm I'm getting I'm way way behind, but I, I'm trying to get caught up on. Uh, Ricky Briganti's show, um, Inside the Magic. Well, he was, uh, he had a, an opportunity to be in on some sort of, I'm not sure exactly what you would call it, but it was kind of like a, like a Disney conference call type of things where like certain fans or certain members of the press or something could be privy to the event. And so he actually got to talk to Boxleitner via this conference thing and and just you know for like a couple of minutes just to ask him like a couple quick questions before it was somebody else's turn and while it was heavily edited i could kind of hear between the lines if you know what i mean and he came across as pretty much the arrogant dismissive ass in that too he he was kind of the same way with ricky that he was with me so it made me feel a little more justified Every time we take a shot at him, you know, that, no, I think this really is how he is. You know what I mean? So I didn't feel so badly about it after hearing that. that <laughs> See, I've just been extremely lucky. The only, the closest I came to, uh, to not having a good experience, uh, especially interviewing a, a creator, was Marv Wolfman just came off as kind of cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like we we had his forty five minutes and we were done. And I understand that because he because um, he's a busy guy. He's writing. I mean, I understand that. But right. you know, after talking to to Jerry Ordway, who's the nicest fucking guy on planet Earth, and then Dan Jurgens, who is very nice and very patient. Uh, you know, it's just and and seems generally. It's like when we were interviewing Jurgens, I think he was a little suspect at first about what this whole thing was about. Right. Yeah. But then by the end of the interview, he was just like, yeah, hey, somebody actually likes this stuff. Because <laughs> I think those guys feel left out now. Mm-hmm. I know Jerry Ordway does. He feels like they've been passed by. So it's another reason why I'm glad we're doing that show, you know, to get it out there. Like, hey, this was a fucking great era of Superman and you need to know about it. So, well, given that, I, I mean, do you, do you think he feels the same way about like, say his JS, uh, his, uh, all-star stuff? Because, and, and I think you and I have discussed this before, but you know, it, it's, it's a weird thing because we've actually been, um, criticized isn't exactly the right word that I want to use, but, uh, 
Call to the carpet? Mm, sort of. I, I'm trying to think of the word I want to use. It, it's come up on our forum um, that we don't really use, we don't really do creator interviews. And th- this really came up a while back when I started a thread basically asking our, our listeners for ideas. You know, what, how do you think we could grow this? How could we make the show better? How could we grow our listenership kind of thing? Every once in a while, I'll throw that out there just to see, you know, what ideas people have. You know, the kind of things they'd like to, to hear and just, you know, ideas for just, you know, growing the show. And this one inevitably comes up. You need more creator interviews. There's always somebody that says that. I'm not, I've never been big on it. And there's a multitude of reasons for that. Um, shit, now I'm losing my, my train of thought just suddenly derailed. I forget where I was going with this. But, uh, you know, I know that you and I had discussed doing certain ones. Yeah, Jerry's up for uh, it for tales. See, and I, I, I think one of the reasons I would, I would really be up for it is that you're very good with that sort of thing. Whereas I, I think one of the, the major reasons that I'm nervous to do them is for one, like you say, certain creators do kind of treat you w- w- with a bit of suspect, like, like maybe you're gonna, you know, like you're setting them up, you know, for, for whatever. But also, I, I think ultimately it just comes down to I don't want to be Chris Farley. You know, I don't want to get, you know, some huge, you know, somebody that I see as some big, huge celebrity in the world of, you know, comics or Star Wars or whatever, and then just sit there and go, yeah, remember when you drew that one book? That was awesome. Because I, you know, I what the hell do I, I don't know these guys. I mean, other than their work, you know. But I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm being. Uh, How do you mean just, I'm good with that? I think I'm terrible when I interview people. No, I mean I I think you guys have done so. I mean everything, and I'll tell you why I feel that way. It's not just because we're friends. I'm not just kissing your ass or telling you what you want. I mean, I think you're very good with that because typically when I'm listening to a show that's about, you know, that has a a, a, a format. And they're doing their regular shtick, and I'm enjoying what they're doing. And on and all of a sudden, they have, hey, we have a, a special where we're going to pull in, you know, personality X to talk about their work. And I'm generally like, ah, fuck, I don't, you know, a, a perfect example is uh, is Ricky's show has slowly been mutating lately to where he's doing more and more interviews with um, people in the world of Disney, essentially. And now the last thing I want to do is criticize his show, you know, because I I do enjoy it very much. But I find myself on the whole fast forwarding through that stuff. I it just doesn't hold any interest to me. I can't tell you why. It just doesn't. It it, it, generally, I I think a lot of it is because to me, a lot of interview, a lot of creator interviews seem to come off the same every time. Where the person, it's like. They don't seem as excited about the material as the people that are calling them in to talk about the material. You know, it's it's like they they've moved on with their life and they don't remember. It seems like there's a, a lot of creator interviews I've heard where the people are like, "Gee, that was a long time ago. I don't really remember." You know, they're into some new thing now and they've kind of moved on, and it becomes this awkward kind of stumbling experience of you know you can you, sometimes you can actually hear the interviewers kind of stymied they're like shit you know this isn't going the way we thought it would go because this person's just 
whether intentionally or not, kind of uncooperative. You know, they're they're not going in the direction that that they were expected to go in. You know, following the material. I don't think you guys, to my recollection anyway, I don't think you guys have had that experience yet. You know, I, I think that yours generally are more in the in the realm of you you pull them in and you just kind of have a, a friendly chit chat, and it ends up becoming more of they're hanging out with you. Yeah, that, and that's that's something I learned from listening to Word Balloon. Actually, mm-hmm. you know, he he keeps it a conversation. Another thing that I found that helps is that we send the questions ahead of time. Uh, like the main questions we're going to ask, not the stuff, because there's stuff that, you know, there's going to be questions that come up on the fly based on their response to the question you sent them. Right. Uh, but if they, uh, this is just my opinion, if somebody was interviewing me and it was something from years and years and years ago, I'd like a, a list of questions so that maybe, you know, Jerry's just like, well, what era are we going to be talking about? Okay, I'll go, I'll go refresh myself on that. Uh, because it has been a while, and uh, and one, I appreciate the hell that he does that because it's just like wow, it's just going to make those stories great because he's he's like the keeper of the flame almost. He remember he was hanging out at the offices a lot with mm-hmm. Mike Carlin and all that, so he got to see a lot of the behind the scenes, behind the scenes stuff. So um, and uh, it's just if you keep it conversational they can kind of re- everybody can relax cuz i'm i'm like you i'm worried that you know any second now it's just like you, you remember when you did the did the song sergeant pepper yeah that was a, that was a really good song i liked that yeah you're you're awesome by the way <laughs> cuz i'm nervous as as hell with those things to begin with if i come off as anything as anything near confident in interviews uh it's i'm a better actor than i thought <laughs> because I'm no seriously, I am nervous as hell when I interview somebody. I get, I get really sorry. There was a yell in the other room. Um, <laughs> I get really. Uh, hey, keep that murder in the other room down. All right. <laughs> fucking podcasting over here. Hey, <laughs> slam the hood of the car. <laughs> podcasting over here. Hey, pal, you can have that heart attack outside. All right. <laughs> Don't say that. That's not funny because it could happen. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, but it, it's funny. But no, it's a, but, that's uh, actually the name of a track on the uh, Night on Earth soundtrack. Is Hey Pal, have that heart attack outside? I always thought that was hilarious. <laughs> so um, no, it's just um, I, I I just I get I get nervous that I'm going to sound stupid. Is basically uh, what oh, it hell, boils down to. Used to that by now. <laughs> but I'm bummed. <sighs> and why are we friends? <laughs> I have to I have to read some old emails to refresh myself on uh, uh, <laughs> on this. <laughs> you realize it's been almost two years since the first time we met. Has it really? Yeah. Wow. I was uh, I I pulled out the Christmas music to put on the Zoom, and one of it was the score to the um, Christmas Carol movie we went to see. Oh, awesome. with uh, with your your wife and your two kids and and Rachel and your two kids seeming r- rather amazed that Rachel knew about video games. <laughs> so uh, they were speaking a common language. <laughs> so uh, and it made me a little sad Aww. That, that you're in that you're in Orlando because it's like oh, 
we can't go see a movie because I'd like to go see the new Sherlock Holmes with Scott. I know that's coming out pretty soon. I was asked mm-hmm. to be on a podcast about that a while back. I wonder if that invitation still stands or not. I don't know. Yeah, I, uh, somebody lent me the first one finally, so I'm going to sit down probably. Oh, have you not seen it before? No, I want to, though, because it's it's Robert Downey Jr., it's Jude Law, it's Sherlock Holmes, and it's hand-to-hand combat. I mean, there is uh, <laughs> that's a big old stew of things Mike likes, so... I I I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I thoroughly expected not to. So that that you know, I don't know what that says, but uh, I did. I really enjoyed it because uh, my wife wanted to see it, and she kind of drugged me to it. And I was like, eh, you know, I'm not all that crazy about you know uh, Robert Downey Jr., but you know, I, you know, we'll, we'll see. I like Jude Law a lot. I actually would would you know originally going into that movie, I was thinking you know I would have rather have had him be Holmes. But uh, I walked away from it going, damn, you know, that was a really good movie. I, I, I really would like to know what a hardcore, uh, what do they call themselves, Holmesians? Uh, yeah, thanks of it. Would think of that. Um, and, you know, now that I think about it, I think I did ask uh, my, my buddy Mark, uh, Mark Buttrick, what he thought of it. Because he is, uh, or is it... No, that's Doctor. I was going to say, is it Whovian? No, Whovians is the Doctor Who guy. He's also into Doctor Who, but he's he's pretty hardcore into uh, Sherlock Holmes what as is well. It Mark into? <laughs> it's weird. He's he's like into everything I'm not. You know, he's he's like you know, <laughs> one of the, you know, like everybody has you know like one of those opposite friends. He's kind of like my opposite friend. You know, it's he's like your Bizarro friend. Is yeah, that yeah, pretty much. <laughs> you know, except for for except for soundtrack stuff, and you know, obviously and Disney. Disney you know, I, we really we're, are we're very diverse in in what we're into because he's you know hardcore into into Doctor Who and Sherlock Holmes and so you know it's just stuff I'm not opposed to. It's just up till recently, you know, with the with the Doctor Who, I you know wasn't really interested. I watched one uh, over breakfast this morning. and I was like, damn, that was a really good episode. Yeah, and you've depressed the shit out of me getting into that because now I feel like I've got to start watching it because I'm like the only guy that's not. Well, you know, you know me. I I I try, or at least you know, I, I talk a good game about not pushing shit on other people because I hate when people do that to me. So I won't push anything, but I would say that uh, knowing you as I feel that I do, I do think that you would enjoy it. And what I liked about this was that you know I'm constantly having people recommend things to me, and I the the biggest barrier to me not getting into certain things that people suggest is because a lot of times there are these huge um, franchises where I just don't know where the hell the jumping in point is. This Doctor mm-hmm. Who was really easy to get into because the the last season, the, the prior uh, season, was the introduction of a new Doctor. So you really didn't need anything that the show wasn't going to give you right out of the gate. I mean, it it starts out basically with everything you need to jump right in. And so far, nothing has happened in that show where I felt like they were referencing something that I just didn't know what the hell they were talking about. And I liked that a lot because while I don't need my hand held at the same rate, you know, there's there's nothing worse than trying to to get into something and you just feel like, all right, there's there's a wink and a nod going on here that I, I is just going over my head. You know, I have so far I have not felt that way with this show. 
it's just solid science fiction. I, I'm I'm really digging it a lot. It, it's it's a good show. It's See, well never, acted. And, uh-huh. I never... It's not that I'm not watching it because I don't like the concept. Right. Um, it's just one of those things that I just never got into. You know, it... it there are things that kind of pass me by because I kind of know the moment that I get into it, that I'm going to get really into it. And there's something about that that kind of scares me right, with my yeah. personality. Oh, believe is, me, you are totally talking. Yeah. I totally understand what you're saying. Yeah. That, that fear that, you know, not so much that you're not going to like it, but that you're going to become the next thing you know, it's the new obsession and you've got to have everything to do it. Yes. Believe me, I completely understand. Cause I got a, a guy that, that, that works in my tech department. That's just like, no, Mike, seriously, come play magic. And I'm like, I'm not going to come play magic. I don't need another hobby. He's like, yes, you do. And I'm just like, and, and, and it's kind of like David Banner telling somebody not to make him angry. It's like, they don't understand what's going to happen. So, <laughs> don't make me geeky. You wouldn't like me when I'm geeky. I mean, well, it's, I just, it's like the thing with the online gaming. I've had so many people find out that, you know, I have I have Xbox and that Scotty has Xbox Live and all that. And they're like, dude, you know, send me your whatever they call it, gamer code or whatever, you know. Let's get you in. And it's like, uh-uh, uh-uh, not going to happen. Because you know why? Because I'll get sucked straight into the world of the computer and the next thing you know i'm a bigger fatter lazier slob than i already am i mean i'm barely getting my shows out on time some weeks you know i've got umpteen thousand unread comic books not to mention you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of novels that i'll i just won't live long enough to get to i do not need another time sucking device you know uh, attached to my hand i just don't yeah i mean no (laughs) the dc game is free now Oh God! You just you did not need to tell me that because see, I've actually been wanting to check into that because it, it looks really cool. And uh, you know, our buddy uh, Juan Castro was doing some artwork for that, some promotional oh, nice. stuff for that. Yeah, nice. Which, no. Speaking of which, I was uh, uh, I was wandering through our uh, gift shop at the resort that I'm working at now, and they had a trade in there, and just you know, just on a whim, I started thumbing through the trade and sure enough, the story where our Easter egg is for two true freaks was in that trade. And I was just such a big dork in the middle. Of the I was like, that's my Easter egg. And people looking at me like, what the hell's wrong with this freak? You know? <laughs> but that's just so cool that that's actually in trade now, you know, and that, that little Easter egg is in there. You need a magnifying glass to see it, but damn it, it's there. It doesn't matter. It's there for you. It's and there. that's all that matters to you. Mm-hmm. That's it. I uh, I want to be an Easter egg in a comic book. <laughs> that sounds really pathetic, but it's true. So, well, we have a. At least I think he listens to our shows. Doesn't John Roman listens to our shows? Doesn't he? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> you know John Roman Pecula. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah he, he listens to our shows. He's uh, uh he does comics. Oh, I didn't know that. Over in, uh, and I, I know we have other, and I feel so badly if I, if I end up putting this on the end of the show, which I think I will. I, I think we have other listeners that are that do things in the world of comics as well. And at the moment, I am completely blanking, so I apologize to anybody out there going, "Hey, wait a minute, I do comics." I, I'm sorry, I just can't remember. But I know he does. He, he actually works for Disney, um, in his own country, and does, you know, the, the, you know how. All the companies, the comic companies have, you know, their their 
I'm trying to think of what you would call it. I want to say foreign distributors, and that's not quite accurate. But you know what I mean. You know that that they have their own house in yeah. other countries. You know, like there used to be Marvel UK and stuff like that. And he he works for um, a subsidiary of Disney Comics um, in his own country. And uh, I've seen some of his stuff online, and it's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous stuff. But I don't know. I, I have a feeling that Disney Act probably – well, no, actually, that, that would be a stupid thing. I was going to say I would, I would have a feeling that Disney probably really polices stuff like that. But then again, our Easter egg is in a Disney book. So, yeah, that doesn't – that that train of th- logic doesn't follow. So yeah. <laughs> Derail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm having a lot of that tonight. It's the lack of sleep. I've had just Dude, I'm the with worst right insomnia there. lately. It's crazy. I am so freaking with you. I just, I, I, I was, the, the text I sent you earlier, which I realize now made absolutely no sense. I should <laughs> tell you exactly how tired I am. I was like, Mike, Mike, don't drink and text, dude. <laughs> nah, hey, just tell me you love me, <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> Um, no, um, we've been getting, uh, we've been getting up early over the past couple of days because Rachel's baking up a storm. Not only is she making our Thanksgiving dinner and the desserts that go with it, she's actually earning a little extra money this year. Um, I, had, I just had the worst mental image. Now your, oh. your wife is a, um, um, busty. No, what is the not a, not a witch? What is a, uh, no? She's a witch. You can oh, say she, it. okay. Because you said she's she's cooking up a storm, and I had this image of her with like the big <laughs> pointy hat and like the stick with the big old cauldron. Or yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know you're not far off. So, <laughs> um, I mean, there, there's no pointy hat, but that's because you know it could, it could catch on fire. Um, <laughs> no, the um. The uh, sticking kids in the oven. <laughs> Look, they shouldn't have wandered on our property, right. <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, <laughs> fuckers got what what was coming. No, she uh, she's earning a little extra pocket money, um, like some good money too, baking cakes and pies for people. Mm-hmm. I mean, holy crap, she got seventy five bucks today for three cakes. Damn. Uh, no, four cakes. Sorry. Four cakes, seventy-five bucks. Did you realize she the should prop- start one of those things like those guys that had that show on? Uh, yeah, now I sound like Clerks. That guy that was in that movie about that thing. There was that show that was that used to be on. Oh, God damn it! Like, like the one of those. Shit, I can't think of the name of it now. My wife used to watch it all. It was the the show about the cake guys. Oh, uh, Ace of Cakes or Ace something? Ace of Cakes, yeah. She should do something like that. That'd be cool. Like, you know, like Geek Cakes type, type of thing. I think that would be awesome. Um, but, uh, and she can do, she can do that stuff. She's, she did, uh, she's done several Superman cakes for me. Oh, wow. Uh, she did a, a Superman symbol cake for me one year. And she cut the symbol out of a round cake, right? So that left chunks of cake left over, or a, a, a square cake. So she iced those green, and there were chunks of kryptonite sitting around the symbol. Oh, that's cool. I'll have to scan that picture and post it on Facebook because it, cool. it, it was really cool. But um, so she's really busy, and 
I'm helping her out. I'm like cleaning up the kitchen so that she doesn't have to. I'm running errands. I'm picking stuff up. Cleaning just to the make batter her... up the spoon. Yeah, I got uh, Hell yes. Uh, <laughs> when it's offered, you don't say no. I found this uh, to be the case for a lot of things with women. Um, <laughs> but uh, What's he talking about? But no, seriously. So, so we've been getting up really early and I'm going to work. And tomorrow is going to be a 10-hour day, at least, because I get in at 2, and all all the managers save one are closing so that we can do the ad set for Black Friday. Right. And then I've got to get up ass early on Thanksgiving to not only help Rachel, but I've got to clean up our rooms and the bathroom and everything because my father is setting foot in my house for the first time. Wow. Uh, that afternoon, he's going to come over and have cake, which we're really excited about, but we're nervous as hell because he's never been here. And we want it to be somewhat presentable. <laughs> so um, so I'm just not going to be getting a lot of sleep in the next like week, and I'm fucking exhausted. Right, I was sitting at work today, like writing out the the paperwork and prepping that for closing up the store, and I'm literally like dozing off. And it's just like, okay, I need some coffee, and I need some coffee right now. That's why uh, I may sound a little hyper right now. I just chugged down a Diet Dr. Pepper. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm, I'm doing the do tonight, so, so I, uh, I can't help it. I, I've fallen off the wagon. Just I, I've got to, or I would probably sleep through a majority of this episode. No offense. <laughs> oh, we got an exciting episode to talk about. I'm kind of looking forward to it myself. We do. We do. I'm really looking forward to it. Because it's been years since I've read this issue. And, uh, dude, this is, I'll save it for the show, but I but I have a, a, a theory about the vigilante that I think would be great. So Cool. Well, you want to get into it? Uh, the, the, one, the one thing I do want to tell you is if you are perusing the uh, 50 cent boxes mm-hmm. and you come across these big, thick countdown specials, uh, there was two Adam ones. There was a Flash, a New Gods, an Omac, a Jimmy Olsen, and an Eclipso. Uh, pick them up, dude, because they are full of some kick-ass reprints. Really? Like the Omac one has um, a couple issues of the of the series. Like the first issue of the series, a guest shot in Warlord over, and the Once in Future War, which was that DC Comics presents. Story by Len Wein and George Perez. And I've been picking these up in like 50 cent dollar boxes. And I'm just wow. like, God, these are thick freaking reprints. The New Gods one looks cool. And the Adam ones, dude, they have, they're reprinting um, Super Team Family stories uh, from the 70s, written by Jerry Conway. So you got like wow. the Flash and the Atom and Supergirl all teaming up. That's a gr- I love that story. That's that one I was raving about on. I, it must have been Back to the Bins or something quite a, wa- a while back. But that's the one. Uh, uh, there's artwork in there by Alan Weiss, and yep. I love that. I love that book. You know what? That might actually make it onto an episode of uh, I've got back a few to things bins. to say oh. about Superman. Well, actually, yeah, Back to the Bins would work too. Yeah, that actually that'd probably be a better fit for it. But uh, uh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I was interrupting you. No, no, no. I, I just I, I had a quick thought that uh, 
I, I this suddenly occurred to me the other day because I'm still th- trying to think of what do I want to fill that uh that fourth week spot with or you know that that missing week you know if I basically if I do you know the Superman show Jonah Hex um you know and you and I had discussed doing a, a traditional back to the bins that still leaves like one week a month where there's like something and I just don't know what what's going to be filled in there I was kind of thinking you know we do back to the bins or at least I do back to the bins strictly with with pulling a random back issue that I have not read you know out of my collection and, and doing it that way and I was kind of thinking I wonder if I should do something where you know I, I I'm basically calling my collection for like a, a, a favorite story from you know years gone by kind of thing and that would definitely be up there on the list because I, you know, granted it's been a long time since I've read it. So again, you know, you run that risk of rereading it and going, wow, that sucked, you know, but I remember really liking that story a lot when I was a kid and, and a lot of it had to do with, uh, you know, the artwork was great and I loved Weiss's take on Supergirl in her hot pants costume <laughs> from, from that era. No, I'm just really glad that I'm finding these. I mean, I had to pay kind of a, a little more than I thought I would for one of them. But uh, out of all of these $5 books, I've gotten a lot of them for like a dollar. I got one, like the two Adam ones I paid a dollar fifty for, and the cover price on these things are four ninety nine. So, love cheap comics. Mm-hmm. Can't say anything bad about cheap comics at all, and I and I'm a I'm a real sucker for reprints. I really am. I have no idea why. I just am. You know, you. <laughs> yes, I would like to have the original issue, and I probably have the original issue, but I still want the reprint because it's a special place that it was put into. And right. So, I can understand that. I, I'm typically not a reprint guy, but at the same rate, I I do like. Uh... I have a fondness for a lot of the Marvel reprint titles of like the seventies and eighties, you know, like Marvel super action and triple action mm-hmm. and stuff. I've got complete collections of just about all that stuff, you know, like Marvel spectacular with Thor and stuff. I like that stuff because, uh, I don't know. There's just something, I don't know. Some, something very nostalgic about that stuff. Well, what I like is one, you, you get different covers sometimes that are really cool. Right. And like with Marvel Tales, theoretically, I could um, I could get like Amazing Spider-Man 1 through 160-something uh, and have all of those in full color. They're just reprints and out of order within Marvel the Marvel Tales numbering. And that's just kind of appealing to me that, that I, you know, it's like I have the essentials and the essentials are great uh, just for having like a big chunk of books all at once. But you can't really ever, doesn't take the place of seeing it in color. Right. I mean, I like black and white. I appreciate black and white, but hot damn, I just want to see it in color sometimes. Right. So it'd be really nice to have it. And then with, uh, you know, finding Marvel tales, which sometimes those are in the cheap bin, uh, though for some reason they're getting expensive on eBay. I don't quite I'm understand. I'm glad I that. snagged them when I did then. But, uh, yeah, you know, speaking of those, um, the essentials, 
we had this uh, this killer one day sale at my LCS that uh, I plan to talk about on uh, probably next Comics Monthly Monday that we do, you know standard uh, format Comics Monthly Monday that we do. But it was an awesome sale, and I got tons of great stuff. But what killed me was the stuff that I had to put back because I just I blew my budget completely out of the water. But they had uh, volumes five, I think it was five and six of Essential Fantastic Four, two dollars, two dollars. And I was like, ah, oh. but I I just I had to you know something had to go back in the in the box and so unfortunately I didn't I didn't pick them up but man I hated passing up essentials for two dollars I was like shit because uh, I'm pretty sure that those were still from an from an era of FF that I don't have many if any issues from because I really don't have much FF pre-burn you know I, I've got scattered issues here and there but largely that's one of those blind spots of comics for me that i i kind of wish i did know a little bit more about just because there's been so much uh talk and praise of that stuff over the years but you know one of these days I, I'd, I'd like to give that a, a, at least a cursory read through to feel a little more educated on the ff stuff i don't know have you ever read any of that stuff i've read the first 10 issues and uh was very entertained but it was really weird. It's like you read the first issue and he fights uh, the Mole Man, mm-hmm. or they fight the Mole Man, and then you read the second issue where they fight the Skrulls. Um, third issue, I think, was Puppet Master, if I'm remembering correctly. And then you get issue five that has Doctor Doom. No, in issue five, four, they they went after Submariner. In issue five, they they did Doctor Doom. And then in issue six, um, Doctor Doom and the Submariner teamed up, and I'm just like, "Wow, you really were just making it up as you uh, oh, were going yeah. going going along there, Stan and Jack. Really, <laughs> okay, that's fine, but wow. <laughs> well, I, have you ever read through the Avengers? I've read like the first four or five issues, and wow, that's that's some slog in there in the early days. Yes, it is. Yes, it is very much so, and it's why I've been very thankful. To guys like uh, Busick and uh, and Wade, who have kind of gone back and filled in the gutters, uh, you know, between those issues, because yeah, it's yeah, it, it's a very awkward read, and as you say, you can really tell with that stuff that you know Stan was just winging it, you know, and winging it to a point to where. Sometimes from one issue to a next, there were these vast jumps and things that just made no sense. And, you know, characters in one issue saying one thing and then in the next issue, they're saying something completely. And it, it is. It's a very weird and awkward read. And it's funny. I was just thinking about this today because I finally got around to uh, uh, reading the first issue of uh, Captain America, Man Out of Time. And it was doing a bit of that where it was kind of filling in the in-between moments right after Cap was revived by the Avengers. And, uh, and I really liked that, you know, that it was kind of giving us more of the story that, you know, to a modern sensibility seems like a no-brainer. You know, you, you bring this guy back after, you know, umpteen years on ice from World War II, and it seems like you would uh, explore a bit of his feeling like a fish out of water, 
<laughs> there was none of that. None of that in the Avengers back in the day. They find Cap, they thaw him out, he's a member of the team, enough said. And that was it. And it, you just went forward and there was none of that you know, ex- exploration of... Until his own series and tales of suspense, yes. Right. But I mean, within the framework, uh, well, even even there, I don't. I mean, I know what you're, re, re, you know, what you're talking about, what you're referencing. But even there, I mean, did you really feel like there was a whole lot of time spent with Cap? You know, where we see him kind of getting used to the modern world, because I, I really don't remember a lot. I mean, I remember a lot of, you know, lamenting the loss of Bucky and and that sort of thing. But you know, never really see him like wander the old streets, you know, to see how much things had progressed in 20 years and things like that. I mean, maybe I'm just not remembering. Do you remember stories like that? There was a lot of, um, there was some of that. There was also some, uh, like when, when, when Sharon Carter showed up and it was all about her, as Thomas DJ would say, it's just, and just him being kind of mopey and whiny. So, love Cap, kind of mopey and whiny, but that's okay, <laughs> because he's Captain Freaking America, and who doesn't want to be Captain Freaking America? I think that was just the, the nature of the beast with comics back then, though, was that it was more about making sure that somebody got punched in the head every issue, rather than, you know, exploring the, the depths of this character's soul. Boot to the head. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> People talking in movie shows, people smoking in bed, people voting Republican, give them a boot to the head. Boot to the head! a car, politicians who can't think, the salesman who won't leave me alone, the waiter who forgot my drink. <laughs> 